Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. COVID vaccine safety. A new report shows that a top government health agency knew about serious adverse events months earlier than was previously known to the public. Lawmakers spar with Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas during a spirited hearing on Capitol Hill. Senators lamented the border crisis and the impact on the country. The IRS is pushing back the tax deadline for Mississippi tornado victims. Last week's tornado left 26 people dead and hundreds of homes destroyed. Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs vetoes a bill that would have eliminated taxes on groceries. It contrasts former gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, who said she'd eliminate food taxes. The Chinese regime and other hostile states are recruiting pawns to do their bidding. That's according to U.S. intel agencies. We hear analysis on how their repressive nations are using fear and silencing tactics to target critics in the U.S. The CDC now says it found safety signals for the COVID vaccine months earlier than previously known to the public. Meanwhile, the WHO declares that most people don't need an additional booster. Here's the story. The Epoch Times this week published files obtained from the CDC via a Freedom of Information Act request. The files show that in May of 2022, the CDC found more than 700 signals that the vaccines could cause adverse events. Such adverse events include acute heart failure and death. It was previously thought the CDC detected the signals in July 2022. When the CDC conducted its first analysis, employees identified more than 200 signals for Pfizer's shot and 93 signals for Moderna's vaccine. Senator Ron Johnson, the top Republican on the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, said federal health agencies have ignored the flashing alarms of their own safety surveillance systems since early 2021. They have ignored my oversight letters and lied about what analyses they have performed. It is well past time for the American public to be told the truth. NTD reached out to the CDC for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. Also on Tuesday, the WHO issued new guidance saying most people don't need an additional COVID-19 booster. The organization says the medium priority group are still advised to get a primary series and one booster. But the WHO is not recommending additional boosters, given the comparatively low public health returns. The updated guidance is a change from before, when the WHO recommended additional boosters for the medium priority group, which includes adolescents with comorbidities. A WHO official said in a statement, countries should consider their specific context in deciding whether to continue vaccinating low-risk groups, like healthy children and adolescents, while not compromising the routine vaccines that are so crucial for the health and well-being of this age group. And the CDC is now also advising against a second updated booster. That's after some people have pushed to be able to get multiple updated boosters. Addressing such people, the CDC said this week that it recommends against more than one of the new shots. The CDC says it will continue to closely monitor the data. The FDA just approved a drug to treat opioid overdose to use without a prescription. That's a first in history. Drug maker Emergent Biosolutions sells the nasal spray under the brand name Narcan. Emergent says it will make Narcan available on U.S. shelves and online by late summer. Drug-related overdoses are a major cause of accidental deaths in the U.S. Official data counted more than 100,000 in 2021. 
The drug can quickly reverse or block the effects of opioids and restore normal breathing, especially if taken within minutes of the first signs of an overdose. Its over-the-counter approval paves the way for easy availability of the life-saving medication. Fired-up lawmakers pressed Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas during testimony yesterday. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the story. Mayorkas appeared before the panel a week after the DHS launched Operation Blue Lotus. That's a strategy designed to curtail the volume of fentanyl flooding into the United States. Senator John Cornyn blamed the policies of the Biden administration under Mayorkas for record fentanyl overdose numbers. The senator brought up the deaths of two teens. Mr. Secretary, would you like to take the opportunity here today to apologize to these parents? Customs and Border Protection seized a record high of nearly 3,000 pounds of fentanyl along the southern border last November. Three years ago, border agents were claiming around 380 pounds of fentanyl each month. Senator Ted Cruz repeatedly tried to get Mayorkas to admit there is a crisis at the border. He then pointed to a photo of colored wristbands inquiring whether the secretary knows what they are. When Mayorkas replied that he didn't know, Cruz called the secretary incompetent for his lack of knowledge. Because the illegal immigrants wear them, the drug cartels, every color corresponds to how many thousands of dollars they owe the cartels. You have turned these cartels into multi-billion dollar criminal organizations, and these are modern day leg irons. Because these are children being sold into sex slavery, and you don't even know what they are. Overall, Border Patrol agents have encountered nearly 5 million migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border since Mayorkas took office. Senator Lindsey Graham reacted. On your watch, Mr. Secretary, we've gone from the lowest illegal crossings in December 2020 to all-time highs. Graham also cited the record fentanyl numbers and highlighted other issues. On your watch, more terrorists are coming into the country on the watch list than any time we've been measuring these things. On China, Mayorkas acknowledged that the number of Chinese national encounters at the southern border has increased significantly. Senator Josh Hawley pointed out that the increase is 900 percent. Are any of these people who came in this bus, these Chinese nationals, members of the Chinese Communist Party? Mayorkas assured Hawley that anyone deemed to be a threat is detained during their removal proceedings. Republicans have repeatedly called for Mayorkas to step down, while two House members introduced articles of impeachment against the Homeland Security Secretary. Mayorkas has repeatedly said that he will not resign. He acknowledged the challenges faced at the border, but says his department is surging increased personnel, facilities, and other methods of support. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The fire at a Mexican migrant facility that killed 38 people was allegedly started by the migrants themselves. Most of them were from Central and South America. And today's Costemines has more on the story. Mexican President López Obrador said the fire was started by migrants who protested after learning they would be deported. Surveillance video footage obtained by U.S. media outlets shows what appeared to be guards walking away during the blaze as the room filled with smoke. Mourners held a vigil outside the offices of the Mexican National Migration Institute in the border city of Ciudad Juarez. To all of those people who died, the guards could have opened the gates because there was only a few meters between the gate that separated them from the migration officers. They didn't open the gate, leaving them locked in. Migrants and activists protested outside the migration center on Tuesday. 
We demand justice for those who were inside. They had been inside there for a month. They cried out of hunger because they didn't give them food. It's not fair, honestly. Immigration authorities identified the dead and injured as being from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Venezuela, Colombia and Ecuador. The fire is one of the deadliest migrant tragedies in years. It occurred as the United States and Mexico are battling to cope with record levels of border crossings. Recent weeks have seen a buildup of migrants in Mexican border cities. Costemenes, NTD News. A top GOP lawmaker has subpoenaed the State Department in efforts to get a classified document to Congress. The Republican is in charge of investigating the Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Congressman Michael McCall is taking the action. He's calling for Secretary of State Antony Blinken to turn over a dissent cable. It was written by U.S. diplomats in Afghanistan before the U.S. withdrawal from the country. The document was sent to Blinken in July of 2021. It warned swift action was needed amid concerns the situation in Afghanistan could rapidly deteriorate. McCall has been asking the department for the dissent cable for months. Blinken has told the committee he opposed sharing the document. He was concerned it might have a chilling effect on diplomats' use of the channel, which is a confidential way U.S. diplomats share concerns with top officials. The frenzied final weeks of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan included a suicide bombing that killed 13 U.S. service members and more than 100 Afghans at the Kabul airport. The Internal Revenue Service has announced tax relief for Mississippi residents and businesses impacted by the recent tornadoes and severe storms. The tax relief extends the deadline for filing individual and business tax returns, as well as making tax payments until July 31, 2023. An estimated 55,000 people live in the four counties covered by the IRS's action. Taxpayers who suffered losses in a federally declared disaster area can claim them in the year the loss occurred or on the previous year. The powerful twisters rolled for 70 minutes on the ground as it traveled 59 miles on Friday night through parts of Mississippi. It was classified in preliminary reports as an EF4 tornado, meaning its winds might have reached between 166 to 200 miles per hour. Some 26 people were killed in the tornado and many homes were destroyed. The Arizona governor vetoes a Republican-led bill that would have banned municipalities from taxing groceries. The intent was to help Arizonans struggling with soaring inflation. The bill echoed promises made by Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, who proposed eliminating all taxes on groceries as well as rent in the state. Republicans said it would put money back into the pockets of Arizonans who are battling with rising inflation. Republicans say 65 of Arizona's 91 cities and towns levy a sales tax of up to 4% on food for home consumption. Democrats and cities across the state opposed the bill. They argued it would be problematic for city budgets by cutting off revenue they generate from food sales. Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs ultimately sided with them. California has made it easier to impose penalties on oil companies. The governor signed a law yesterday giving the state's Energy Commission oversight to determine potential price gouging. It comes after Governor Gavin Newsom accused oil companies of price gouging last year, even when crude oil prices started to decrease. In a press conference Tuesday, Newsom called it, quote, one of the greatest ripoffs in modern American history. State legislators who worked on the bill say it will bring transparency to how oil companies are coming up with pricing. 
The law is expected to go into effect in 90 days. The Biden administration is moving ahead with a massive drilling auction today. They're trying to lease or sell off more than 73 million acres of waters in the Gulf of Mexico to be used for offshore oil and gas drilling. Senator Joe Manchin forced the administration's hand when he added the sale to last year's Inflation Reduction Act, a major climate and energy bill the president signed. In its environmental impact analysis for the sale, the administration estimated the drilling could emit about 21 million metric tons of carbon dioxide. Environmental groups say that analysis is flawed, and they take issue with the size and scope of the sale, saying nothing in the Inflation Reduction Act said it had to be so many acres. They have filed a lawsuit trying to stop the sale. An Interior Department spokesperson declined to comment on the auction. This comes just weeks after the Biden administration's decision to greenlight the Alaska oil drilling Willow Project. A toxic chemical-filled barge broke loose on the Ohio River and partially sank. Authorities haven't reported any leaks so far. Ten barges in total broke free from a tugboat in Kentucky. Seven have been recovered. The remaining three are pinned against a dam, including one containing 1,400 tons of methanol. Methanol is an extremely poisonous chemical, but authorities believe it would dilute quickly if any leaks occurred. However, some fish die-off would be expected. The other barges were carrying soy and corn. A Texas mom is fired up after teachers made her 13-year-old daughter play a sexually-themed game at school. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the story. When Laura Gruber learned a charter school was being built down the street, she was very pleased. As a relatively liberal person, KIPP Academy's message of celebrating diversity, equity, and inclusion resonated just fine with her, and the nearby location was convenient. But things would soon take a turn for the worse. Gruber learned that her daughter was asked to play a seducing hooker in an unusual classroom game. I was shocked. I was shocked. And that was when I was like, you know what, this is, I'm over it. Uh, Thankfully, no kids were touched. Thankfully, you know, but where, at what point does sexualization, you know, begin in the eyes of of these groomers? Both kids gave me the same account. Uh, My daughter's class was lined up in order from uh, youngest to oldest, which is, you know, least mature to most mature. Um, And then the other little girl's class was uh, offered candy. Gruber discovered the game was an adult drinking game version of rock, paper, scissors called Bear, Hooker, Hunter. Uh, At which point, now I understood at this time, literally it just was like this aha moment, like, that's what the other side is talking about. Like, I get it. This is happening. This is real. The angry mom took action immediately, pulling her daughter from school and calling the school's principal. I believe that, you know, quick apology, like, hey, we're sorry, could have been, you know, in place during that meeting. But it was more of a, um, you know, we'll get back to you. And when she got back to me, um, she said, you know, while we while we agree that the game was inappropriate, we don't find that children were sexualized through it. Gruber believes more needs to be done. I would have definitely fired the teacher um, and I would hold accountable each level of administration that denied that having a child pose in front of a class um, as a seducing, you know, hooker is not sexualization. Like, they, they need to be held accountable. The school later apologized in a letter to parents, admitting that the game, quote, did not meet our bar of excellence. Gruber says the experience taught her many lessons. When you care about family, you need to do your homework in schools. And if you're not doing your homework in schools, 
uh, you know, there's a problem, but also you also you need to do your homework with who you're choosing to represent you as well. And she's making sure people learn about what happened. She has visited the state capitol, sat in senators' offices, and says this won't be the last people hear from her. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene has found herself in hot water with Twitter. The social media company has suspended her official account after she shared a notice for an upcoming rally called the Trans Day of Vengeance. The Trans Radical Activist Network is hosting the event in Washington, D.C. from March 31st until April 2nd. Greene alleged that Antifa was organizing the event in her post. Twitter's head of trust and safety says the company removed images of the poster from multiple accounts. They said the language vengeance could incite violence. Green complained about the suspension on her personal account. She said she was exposing the Trans Day of Vengeance a day after a school shooting committed by a transgender shooter. Twitter said her official account will be restored in a week. Elon Musk has joined a group of experts who are worried about the impact of artificial intelligence on society. He's among over 1,000 people to sign a letter calling for a pause in developing AI systems stronger than OpenAI's GPT-4. Tune in at 5 o'clock Eastern to NTD's business show for more. Arkansas is suing Meta and TikTok. The state claims the social media giants are making their platforms manipulative and addictive to children on purpose. The lawsuits allege that both companies violated the state's Deceptive Trade Practices Act. That law makes it illegal to engage in false or deceptive business practices. Arkansas says Meta creates their products using complex algorithms designed to exploit human psychology, cause addiction, and maximize user screen time. The lawsuit against TikTok alleges that TikTok routinely exposes the data of Arkansas consumers to access and exploitation by the Chinese Communist Party. The issue of abortion is front and center once again, as a federal court considers a potential ban on abortion drugs. Today, we hear the story of an abortion survivor and her journey to forgiveness. 44-year-old Jennifer Milborn was born and raised in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, by her birth mother's sister and her husband. She always knew she was adopted, but it wasn't until when she was 19 that she learned her birth mother had tried to abort her. And I was very ashamed because I didn't want anyone in the world to know that I was that unwanted, that someone didn't want me to the point to where they were willing to take my life. And I definitely wrestled with a bit of shame and guilt over it. Milborn's birth mother was unmarried at the time and was 16 weeks pregnant when she went to a rural abortion clinic. But the baby's head was larger than expected and didn't fit in the vacuum tube, so the clinician had to pull back. The abortionist sent my birth mom home saying, you know, we tore the embryonic sac, more than likely you're going to miscarry. And since she was an alcoholic already, they probably figured, of course she'd miscarry. Milborn buried her pain and shame for a decade. She eventually shared her truth with her husband, and soon after, a spiritual experience prompted her to think about forgiving her birth mom. I was actually cleaning uh, my bathroom floor, uh, listening to worship music, and I, I sensed, uh, like I kind of heard, you know, that inside voice we have, that I needed to forgive my birth mom. And I tried several times to ignore that small voice, and I realized I am having a moment with God himself. And so I just started sobbing, and I felt that unction to utter the words, I forgive her, so I did. 
Advocating for life has now become Melbourne's passion and purpose. She has since met other abortion survivors and joined a nonprofit called Abortion Survivors Network. She thanks God for saving her life. For him to save my life, I owe him everything. And I want to speak out for all those that didn't make it, that should have made it, who shouldn't have perished the way that they did. You know, abortion isn't just about the mother, it's about the baby. Milbourne represents fellow abortion survivors at every annual March for Life rally. She argues that the overturning of Roe v. Wade was a good step in the right direction, but there is still work to be done. Abortion is um, a very selfish type of medical procedure. In fact, it's the only me medical procedure that when a doctor fails, a life is saved. Milbourne said she's fully forgiven her birth mother now, and noted that her birth mother was also a victim of the abortion industry, just like she herself was. Idaho is looking to toughen up its abortion laws. A bill which just passed the state house would create a new crime called abortion trafficking. That means arranging an abortion for a minor without parental consent or providing a minor with abortion pills without such consent. The bill would also criminalize anyone transporting a pregnant minor to get an abortion, which would also include traveling to other states. Abortion trafficking would be a felony, with punishments ranging from two to five years in prison. A casino employee in Colorado is accused of swiping half a million dollars from her employer. The suspected theft at the Monarch Casino near Denver happened on March 12th, but the employee, Sabrina Eddy, says the accusations against her are false. She told investigators she received text messages she thought had come from one of her bosses. Eddie says the caller told her the casino was having trouble with a delivery and would be in breach of a contract. She said the caller instructed her to take the money and hand it over to a lawyer. Eddie met up with a man at the hospital. When she returned to the casino, she said she received another text that she needed to get more money. Eddie claims she did nothing wrong and was simply following orders from her employer. But for now, the Gilpin County Sheriff's Department isn't buying her story and she is behind bars there. Coming up, Taiwan's president says she won't back down from her international trip despite Beijing's threats. She's scheduled to speak to U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Hong Kong drops in its ranking as global financial center. Singapore ascends to Hong Kong's former rank, and San Francisco is close behind. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen hit a defiant note today after China threatened retaliation if she met House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. She spoke at a Taiwan airport before leaving for the U.S. Taiwan's determination to go global will only grow stronger. Taiwan is the world's Taiwan. Leading Taiwan to the world and bringing the world into Taiwan is an important goal of our administration. External pressure will not hinder our determination to go to the world. We're calm and confident, will neither yield nor provoke. China, which claims democratically ruled Taiwan as its own territory, has repeatedly warned U.S. officials not to meet Tsai, viewing it as support for the island's desire to be seen as a separate country. China staged war games around Taiwan last August, when then U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taipei. 
Taiwan's armed forces have said they are keeping watch for any Chinese moves while Tsai is abroad. Tsai is going to Guatemala and Belize, transiting through New York first and Los Angeles on the way back. She is expected to meet McCarthy while in California. Taiwanese presidents routinely pass through the United States while visiting diplomatic allies in Latin America, the Caribbean and the Pacific, which, although not official visits, are often used by both sides for high-level meetings. U.S. intel agencies are warning that China, Iran and other repressive states are recruiting pawns to help them target their critics in the U.S. The FBI is warning individuals and organizations to be on the lookout for improper efforts of obtaining information or other ways of supporting these malicious operations. Joining us for analysis is former FBI agent Mark Ruskin. Mark spent 20 years as a special agent, primarily undercover. He's also a former assistant district attorney for Brooklyn. Mark, thank you for coming on the show. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for inviting me to be here. How widespread is the act of recruiting these foreign intelligence entities to harm critics of these repressive regimes who are in the U.S.? Well, hostile intelligence services will evaluate, you know, how far they can push the envelope and utilize whatever means are at their disposal in order to accomplish their goals. So in an environment like uh, the U.S., where there's a a lot of freedom of activity, they can get away with more than they could in a more repressive uh, country. Sort of using our own systems to strangle us. Can you elaborate a little bit more on this? Well, typically, uh, intelligence officers from a hostile power will evaluate, will find local uh, individuals whom they can recruit and utilize as proxies and also to remove themselves by one layer from the actual activity so that if there's a, uh, uh, if the individuals who are acting on their behalf get implicated, they can essentially have some kind of barrier between themselves and those who and the the proxies who are acting on their behalf. I see putting a little distance between them. Now, the intel agency said in 2020, Iran said a private investigator tried to kidnap a critic in the U.S. And last year, an illegal agent of the Chinese regime tried to repatriate CCP targets back to China. Can you walk us through how these regimes go about these devious tactics? Well, I mean, typically, the uh, you know what they, what they will do is they will try and develop an operational plan that will accomplish their goals of silencing their critics and at the same time uh, put fear into other individuals who may be uh, acting as critics or thinking of acting as critics. You know, the issue is, are they violating laws in within you know, the United States or are their proxies violating laws? In the situation that we've described here, There seems to be no doubt that there are laws being violated, and the task for the intelligence services and local law enforcement is to uh, uh, investigate and prosecute them for any laws that are being violated so as to uh, have a deterrent to keep them from uh, acting in such a manner. Illegal silencing and fear tactics, that is definitely something that needs to be dealt with. We've recently seen the Chinese spy balloon incursion. TikTok CEO attempted to distance parent company ByteDance from the CCP, but with bipartisan skepticism. And now this intel report on pawns. Can you connect the dots for us here on the threat posed by the communist regime in Beijing? Well, 
the, the threats, you know, are certainly are real, and and you know, proactive actions have to be taken in in order to you know uh, prevent them from acting on those on the uh, on the risks that uh, that are posed. The, the utilization of pawns and proxies has been going on for a long time. The bulletin that just came out is essentially a rehash of information that's been pretty commonly known within the intelligence and even outside of the intelligence community. And these kinds of actions occur in, you know, in various countries. This is not just occurring in the United States. You know, in, in some situations, we've even seen assassinations carried out, uh, not in the U.S. necessarily, but you know, by hostile powers in order to silence the critics. Bringing more attention to this recurring problem, former FBI Special Agent Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you for inviting me, Kevin. Thank you. South Carolina may partly ban Chinese companies from buying land in the state. A bill just passed the state Senate regarding companies and citizens of China, as well as other foreign adversaries. The bill was introduced after Chinese biomedical company Anpac said it's buying 500 acres for $28 million. The land is near the U.S. Army's Cyber Command headquarters in the state. The ban would apply to countries listed as adversarial by the U.S. Department of Commerce. That list currently includes China, Russia, Cuba, Iran, and North Korea. The bill doesn't require existing landowners to sell any of their property and only pertains to future acquisitions. State Senator Mike Fanning opposed the measure and expressed concern for rural communities that have limited options for foreign investments. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried had another charge added to his indictment yesterday. Federal prosecutors allege he bribed Chinese regime officials with $40 million in cryptocurrency. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the new charge. The founder of bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange FTX is now facing a 13-count indictment. Federal prosecutors on Tuesday stated that accounts belonging to Bankman-Fried and others directed and caused the transfer of at least $40 million in crypto to Chinese government officials. Chinese authorities froze accounts for Bankman-Fried's hedge fund Alameda Research in November 2021. The Chinese regime has been cracking down on cryptocurrency since 2017. It banned digital currencies in September 2021. Prosecutors say Bankman-Fried and his colleagues employed numerous legal and personal methods to unfreeze the accounts. The accounts contained roughly $1 billion worth of crypto. The indictment says Bankman-Fried directed a multi-million dollar bribe to influence and induce Chinese officials to unfreeze some of the accounts. He is accused of violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, an anti-bribery statute. Bankman-Fried was previously accused of stealing billions of dollars in customer funds to plug losses at his hedge fund, money laundering, and orchestrating an illegal campaign donation scheme to buy influence in Washington. He has pleaded not guilty to eight of the 12 prior counts he faces. Bankman-Fried is expected to be arraigned Thursday on the latest charge. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Hong Kong now ranks fourth out of 120 financial centers worldwide, with New York, London, and Singapore in the top three. This is according to the latest Global Financial Center Index report. The report was put out by UK-based think tank Zedian and the China Shenzhen Institute of Comprehensive Development. Hong Kong has consistently held the third position in the rankings since 2007, but Singapore and San Francisco have both been catching up. In the 2022 rankings, Singapore surpassed Hong Kong to take third place, while San Francisco closely trailed behind, with only one point separating it from Hong Kong. 
Hong Kong Score is a financial technology center has decreased even more, and its ranking dropped four places, falling out of the world's top 10 financial technology centers. The report shows Singapore and Washington are replacing Beijing and Hong Kong in that ranking. And still to come, Russia says it won't rethink its decision to pause a nuclear treaty with the U.S., despite the U.S. saying it won't share data. And French workers continue to protest. Sentiment against the president grows after he pushes changes to pension benefits. More shortly here on NTD News Today. The U.S. military is now flying its drones further south over the Black Sea. The shift comes as it collects intelligence on what's happening on the ground in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Pentagon made the change after a Russian jet collided with a U.S. drone earlier this month. U.S. military officials tell CNN that flying further south limits its ability to gather intelligence related to the war. Although spy satellites can fill in some gaps. The new flight pattern puts U.S. drones further away from the Crimean Peninsula and the eastern portions of the Black Sea. While the U.S. still plans to fly in international airspace, the Biden administration has said it is trying to avoid any incident that could escalate into a direct conflict with Russia. Russia says it won't review its decision to suspend the nuclear treaty with the U.S. This is after Washington stopped sharing some data on its nuclear forces. The United States announced on Tuesday it would stop exchanging some information required by the START treaty. Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered Moscow to suspend its own participation in February. Russia says it will voluntarily stick to agreed limits on the number of nuclear warheads, regardless of what the U.S. does. The treaty was signed in 2010 and due to expire in 2026. It caps the number of strategic nuclear warheads that both countries can deploy. The U.S. and Russia are the world's largest nuclear powers. Russia's defense ministry said on Wednesday it had begun exercises with its intercontinental ballistic missile system and several thousand troops. The United States has replaced Russia as the biggest supplier of crude oil to the European Union. EU data office Eurostat says in December, 18% of the bloc's crude imports came from America. That's a big turnaround. Until recently, Russia was the bloc's top supplier of crude, accounting for up to 31% of total imports until the end of January 2022. At the time, the U.S. came at a distant second with a maximum 13% share. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 led to an upheaval in Europe's energy supplies. EU states slashed their imports of Russia's energy, and the bloc imposed sanctions on Russia's oil and coal exports. France is seeing the 10th day of nationwide protests and strikes. Tens of thousands marched in the streets of Paris and other cities while workers blocked train tracks and motorways. While unions plea with the government to pause its hotly contested pension reform, public frustration has evolved into broader sentiment against the president. Entity's France correspondent David Vives has the details. French protesters clashed with police in some cities as they marched across the country on Tuesday against President Emmanuel Macron's deeply unpopular pension bill. In the western city of Nantes, the boarded-up front of a bank branch was set on fire, while some demonstrators shot fireworks at police. In Marseille, protesters blocked train tracks for a while. In Paris, between 90 and 450,000 demonstrators took to the streets. Some media outlets have reported the protests are taking a turn 
seeing an increase of violence and clashes with police. Demonstrators in Paris we spoke to confirmed this trend. I think there's a climate of violence that comes from above, clearly, and the demonstrations, I think, they are wanted by the government too, and we have someone on top who's obviously adding fuel to the fire. The protest started over the pension reform, and now I think it's a completely different protest. In any case, I'm here for more than just the pensions. I'm not just here to protest the reform. I'm here to protest against the person. There's a climate of violence. It's not fueled by the police. It's fueled by the state. It's the government that gives orders. It's the ministers who enforce and the prefects who carry out what they are asked to do. Many protesters say they are here not only because of the pension reform, but also due to Macron's attitude toward the people. The government repeated it would stand firm on the pension front and the law would be implemented in September this year. This protester says the government's overriding parliament to implement the reform is a denial of democracy. I'm a craftswoman, so I intend to work as much as possible and not just until I'm 64. I'm here today to say enough is enough to trample on our democracy. Enough is enough of the 49-3 constitutional decree to override parliament. Enough is enough of this government that does not listen to the people. I was one of the yellow vests. The government has attempted to minimize this movement and to bear it for years. And that's it. And today, I hope that we'll be more and more numerous each week to make our discontent known to Macron. This Yellow Vest protesters says it's not only about the pension reform, but about people struggling to pay their bills and make a living. At the beginning, it was just a normal demonstration, but now I feel that the people are extremely upset because of the purchasing power, inflation, the price of fuel. It's always the same people, the MPs and so on, who always get away with their salaries. Whereas we, at the end of the month, on the fifth of the month, we're running out of money and we can't cope anymore. And we're here because it has to stop. It really has to stop. They really need to realize that there are mothers who can no longer feed their children and make ends meet. It's really difficult. Official figures say over 700,000 of protesters on Tuesday marched in France. More demonstrations are scheduled next week. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Meanwhile, in Northern Ireland, authorities have raised the terror threat level from substantial to severe, meaning an attack is highly likely. The threat level was reduced only one year ago. Northern Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris announced the change and urged the public to remain vigilant but not be alarmed. He cited a small number of individuals who remain determined to use politically motivated violence. The move comes after a series of incidents targeting security forces in Northern Ireland, including the attempted murder of a senior police officer last month. He remains in critical condition in the hospital after the attack. A group called New IRA claimed responsibility for the shooting, as well as an attempt to kill two police officers with a bomb last November. Many are still in temporary camps after the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. A Swedish nonprofit is providing emergency shelters, which can be built in under six hours. And today's Andrew Thomas has the details. The magnitude 7.8 earthquake on February 6th killed more than 52,000 people. The majority of the fatalities were in Turkey. 
More than 100,000 buildings either collapsed or were severely damaged. In Hossa, some 90 families have been given a safe haven. In Turkey, it's, it's, it's freezing cold at nights. You know, you need somewhere to stay dry and to stay warm. People are sleeping in their cars, on the streets, and, you know, under very temporal, temporary rubble shelters, right? So, so there's an acute need, you know, you just have somewhere place to stay. With the support of the IKEA Foundation, Swedish nonprofit Better Shelter is providing 5,000 tents. In Hatay province, 350 of them are already set up. For the displaced, these shelters offer more than just physical refuge. But then you also have the entire psychosocial comfort of a shelter, of a home, like somewhere where you sort of can close the door from the world outside, even if in a temporary structure like this, and even if just for, for a while, you know, where you sort of, where you can recover and, and, and you know, as, as, as a family and, and as a community. These units can withstand temperatures as low as negative four degrees. With just a couple of boxes, a shelter can be built in four to six hours. Everything comes into boxes. Uh, you know, you can assemble it yourself on site. So it's really designed for this efficient logistics, um, you know, to, to get the units out quickly to the people in need. Um, it's made, uh, it's um, a rectangular shape. It's 70.5 square meters. Since 2015, Better Shelter has delivered over 80,000 units to over 80 countries. But in Turkey and Syria, the nonprofit's work is far from over. The reconstruction here will take so long. There's so many shelters and so many houses that has been damaged. So over long term, shelter is a critical component. Better Shelter is currently producing another 5,000 units for delivery to Turkey and Syria. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, a new food hall in Germany isn't accepting cash. That's unusual in a nation that's been slow to transition to credit cards and mobile pay. Is this new venue a glimpse of the future? Hungary's wedding industry struggles amid sky-high inflation. The number of weddings plunged to a nine-year low at the beginning of this year. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. European Union countries gave final approval yesterday to a landmark law ending sales of new carbon dioxide emitting cars in 12 years. The approval means Europe's main climate policy for cars can now enter into force. By 2035, all new cars sold must have zero CO2 emissions. And by 2030, the emissions must be 55% lower. Poland voted against the law, saying it risks increasing car prices, and Germany demanded an exemption to the ban. The European Commission agreed and pledged to allow sales of new cars that only run on e-fuels to continue after 2035. This offers a potential lifeline to traditional vehicles, although e-fuels are not yet produced at scale. E-fuels are produced by synthesizing captured carbon dioxide emissions and hydrogen produced using carbon-free electricity. In Germany, and especially its capital, Berlin, many shops and restaurants only accept cash. But a new food hall would mark the beginning of the end for the paper notes. And today's Andrew Thomas has more. This is the Manifesto food hub near the city's Potsdamer Platz. Surprisingly, there aren't any bratwurst or schnitzel. Instead, the 22 vendors serve food from all around the world. We're trying to create kind of a marketplace atmosphere with a bit of an elevated experience. 
So think about your favorite food markets in the world uh, or street food markets in the world. Um, we have that kind of atmosphere. It's a bit dynamic, it's, it's lively, but at the same time, we wanted to make that a bit more refined. What you won't find is a vendor that accepts cash as payment. The whole place is completely cashless, something new for the German capital. The first imperative was to provide a hygienic place to eat where you didn't have to kind of exchange notes and coins with the vendors where you don't know where that money's been. Um, and so cash is dirty, so we don't want it in, in the market. According to the German Central Bank, cash is still the most popular way to pay for goods and services. In 2021, 58% of all payments were cash, down from 74% in 2017. For Barry, there was no question about making manifesto cashless. Okay, the other benefits of, of having a cashless environment, um, and particularly because of the, the pandemic, it's grown in popularity around the world, um, is safety. We've had very little instances of petty theft in our locations. In the German capital, most people seem fine with just cashless payments. There are just a couple of concerns. The problem with smaller children is that they don't have an overview. For example, if you give a child a credit card, you can't see how much they spent. It can also be that the card is then blocked because too much has been spent. Cash is still king in Germany, but its reign could be nearing an end. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Soaring inflation is leaving Hungary's wedding industry at the altar, with the number of weddings plunging to a nine-year low at the start of this year. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Hungary's family support measures have fueled a recent boom in weddings, but the situation appears to be changing. I think everything has become a lot more expensive. We have exceeded our budget several times, but then someone says we only have a wedding once, and then we spend more on something and cut back on others, so we have to make compromises, but it's difficult. In January, the number of weddings recorded in Hungary fell to about 1,200, the lowest number since January 2014. The couples are facing more difficulties, many of them tell me. It is relatively easy to calculate with me, but many locations have told them that they could not take reservations as they are still working on their pricing for next year, so couples have to wait for that. Michal Toth is a master of wedding ceremonies. He says the number of nuptials will likely fall from last year's levels, and the weddings that do go through will likely be smaller. What we are seeing now is that the number of guests at weddings is dramatically decreasing. 20 years ago when I began my career, the average wedding had 100 to 120 guests. Then 10 years ago it was 80 to 100. And now weddings with 60 guests are more frequent. Tamea Zabo and her fiancé got engaged in 2020. They were forced to forego a wedding reception due to the steep rise in costs. We agreed that we will have the wedding in Budapest, but only with a standing reception. There will be no wedding party. We are giving that up. We will only have a small, familiar get-together and then go out with some friends for the night. Hungarian couples could be in for long engagements. Hungary's annual inflation rate hit over 25 percent, the highest in Central Europe and the country is projected to have the European Union's highest average inflation rate at 16.4% this year. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. 
In southwest England, a couple is taking pride in their three children. They are now the world's smallest triplets to survive. The sisters were born in a hospital in Bristol at just 22 weeks into their mother's pregnancy. The mom says it was a shock, as she didn't even know she was pregnant until three weeks before delivery. The father describes the trio as smaller than a bag of sugar at birth, but now they have turned two years old. They entered the Guinness Book of World Records for being the lightest and earliest born triplets to survive until being toddlers. The parents are grateful to the doctors and nurses at the hospital. Because they were born earlier than just earlier than viability, um, technically the hospital could have just turned around and gone, there's nothing we can do. Without Southmead and without Faith and the nurses, and I don't think the girls would have the life they've got now. These siblings spent most of their first year in the hospital with oxygen, incubation, and 24-hour care. Two of them also have complex medical needs, like a heart condition that will require further surgery. The parents say despite the tough beginning, the triplets are among the happiest children. And coming up, a show of classical Chinese dance is touring the globe, inspiring audiences everywhere. We'll hear what they say after the break here on NTD News Today. Shen Yun Performing Arts is touring around the world. This past weekend, audiences from different regions said they are inspired by the performance. Shen Yun is touring the globe with eight troops simultaneously. Audiences are saying they appreciate the beauty of the performance. Really enjoy the performance. Enjoy the music, the dancing, the story, uh, the singing, the instrumentalists. It was all really, really captivating. Fantastic. All across the board. Everything. The orchestra, absolutely on point. The soloists, amazing. The dancers, uh, the joy, the time that, and the effort that's put into their choreography and their dance. It's amazing. Yes, it is exciting. It is a beautiful, traditional culture with enormous artistic power. Wonderful, discipline, strength, and at the same time, the softness they bring to us. It was a very nice show, invigorating after a day of work. You can get here at night and live it all and go home happy, peaceful, and at peace. Audience members took notes of Shengying's mission to bring back China's 5,000 years of traditional cultures before communism. Yeah, I think we are all trying to find our histories and bring them forward. And I think Shen Yun trying to do that and share with everybody and give the education for everybody to know the history is really important. I think this is indeed a very arduous task, and we are also grateful to Shen Yun for such persistence over the years. Theatergoer said the value shown in the performance resonated with them. I can't remember ever seeing anything so perfect. The important thing for me is the combination of beauty and spirituality that draws me here. I think it is unique in that I haven't seen any in other music performances. After all, I am from the music industry. And I think performances like this bring an art artistry like this an excellence like this to a stage here in South Carolina really gives us hope. I think there's a lot of people who, after they experience this, will have an even better appreciation for Chinese culture and history, as well as I think they're going to leave thinking about faith and being a better human. The company will tour through May. NTD News, New York.
Shen Yun is coming to Lincoln Center in New York City in April and will be performing in the greater New York area for a month. Find your nearest performance at ShenYun.com. While being high in glucose and fructose, honey has some helpful effects for diabetics. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Honey can reduce blood sugar despite being roughly 80% sugar. Yes, you just heard me correctly. In addition to lowering blood sugar, honey can boost immunity and slow the aging process. Recently, researchers have shown that honey has a wide range of unexpected advantages. One example, if diabetics consume honey in moderation, it may significantly reduce their risk of developing heart disease. It may also reduce their risk of diabetes complications. Eating honey can also help with obesity and lower blood pressure. This can prevent diabetes. Honey has long been used in traditional medicine. It looks like the scientists are finally catching on and beginning to explain its advantages. So let's dive a little deeper. So can diabetic patients eat honey? There is a long-standing misconception that diabetics can't use honey in their diets. This is because of the high amount of carbohydrates in its chemical makeup. So can they eat honey or not? Romanian researchers from the University of Agricultural Sciences and Veterinary Medicine looked into this. They found that when compared to the consumption of dextrose and sucrose, honey can cause people with diabetes to have lower elevated blood sugar levels, higher elevated insulin levels. According to the study, honey benefits diabetic individuals. Honey's antioxidant properties are crucial in the management of diabetes. Some research was published in the Scientific World Journal in 2008. It said that these beneficial effects may be related to the high content of fructose in honey. The high amounts of fructose in honey stimulates glucokinase in liver cells. This plays an important role in promoting the uptake and storage of glucose in the liver. Therefore, fructose in honey is very important in lowering blood sugar. A dazzling pink diamond is coming to auction in New York. The stone has earned the title the Eternal Pink, and for good reason. Sotheby's describes the jewel as the most vivid pink diamond ever to hit the market. Bidding begins in early June. The gem is valued at more than $35 million. The diamond comes in a rare size of nearly 11 carats. It also boasts a unique violet hue with even and rich saturation. Pink diamonds are rare enough, but the auction house says the diamond's intense color is almost unheard of at this size. It is the rarest color, the most intensely saturated color I've ever seen. It's a cushion shape, and it's also internally flawless. So the equation adds up to far more than the sum of its parts, because when you see it in person, you can see how special the color is and how incredibly even and rich the saturation is. It's not like any other diamond I've ever seen. This is part of Sotheby's 50th anniversary in Asia. The San Diego Zoo is celebrating the birth of twin Amur leopards, one of the world's most endangered species. The zoo says fewer than 300 of the big cats are estimated to exist on Earth. The twins were born several weeks ago and have just emerged from their birthing den with their mother Satka. Zoo officials say the time in the den allowed the cubs to bond with their mother. They say both appear to be healthy. The cubs have not yet been named, and zookeepers won't know the sex of the twins until they get a full veterinary exam. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.